morning. I'm going to say what I said for the first service. Um, uh, we could probably stop right now, and that would be one of the shortest sermons you've probably ever heard, but you get a little bit more for your, your morning here with us. Um, <clears throat> Hard-pressed on every side. Boy, there's a phrase. So what images does that phrase bring to your minds? Probably nothing good. And if, um, if you're at all like me, it really started with this whole COVID thing, um, you know, that we've been living with since March of 2020. Yep, two years ago, over two years ago now. Uh, the pandemic itself, the loss of time together with loved ones, and in some cases, the loss of loved ones. The restrictions, the social distancing, the masks, not being able to go to work, to school, to travel, to play, um, all these impacts on our lives in so many ways. And none, at least, that I've identified that I would deem good. And all of this has me and most everyone else downright sick and tired, probably with the emphasis on sick. Uh, add to that things like social, political, and cultural divisiveness, the war in Ukraine, economic instability, rampant inflation, supply chain issues, attacks on traditional values in, in all aspects of society, and attacks on the church, attacks on Christians. You know, I'm now, and I'm sure you are, to the point of being sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, and if that's not a recipe for feeling beat down, hard-pressed on every side, I don't know what it is. But of course, and I'm smiling, all is not lost, right? So this morning, um, I'd like to visit with you for a brief time, uh, looking into a passage from 2 Corinthians to gain a biblical perspective on life, actually a biblically right perspective on life in these challenging and sometimes troubled times. But before we, we jump into 2 Corinthians, um, I want to preface what we're going to be talking about today by reading the first seven words of Romans chapter 5. You don't have to go there. Um, and it's, it's these. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, these opening words of Romans 5 sets everything that we're going to speak about this morning in motion. That biblically right perspective that I mentioned depends on these words, since we have been justified through faith. The benefits of peace with God, access to to God, sharing in God's glory, hearts being filled to overflowing with His divine love. Actually, our entire perspective on life is and should be grounded on the fact that we as believers have been justified. God has declared us not guilty. We're justified. 
And he doesn't continue to throw our sins at us. But instead, he blesses us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We're saved. Amen? We're saved. So, as we look into our passage for today, think of this. If God has already done the most difficult thing of declaring us not guilty, then we can trust Him and trust Him completely to take care of our present and future, and that's individually, and our present and our future as a church. No matter how difficult it is or may be, as we take in and receive all that He wants to give us in Christ. So, let's turn to our Bibles, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then... Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for our time today in your word, and and we ask you that you would open our minds and our hearts to your truth as contained in your word. We ask, Lord God, that your, your spirit would work on us, in us, and through us, and that you would change us, mold us, and make us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, as we serve others and glorify you. Amen. So before we go any further and really jump into the passage, I, um, I just want to 
kind of note at the outset that this passage speaks specifically of Paul and his ministry and to the tremendous persecution that he faced throughout that ministry. It clearly, however, this, this passage still has direct application to our lives in this day and age, in our faith life, as well as our life in the world. So at this point in his letter to the, the church in Corinth, Paul begins with a very important reminder of the Corinthian believers. He says this, we have this treasure. That's how he starts out. We have this treasure. What treasure is he speaking of here? The treasure is the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory God made evident through that gospel. It's the very light of God and the light of the knowledge of the glory of God reflected in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the greatest treasure in all creation. A treasure of immeasurable worth. And what does he say? We have this treasure. Interestingly though, what does he say holds this priceless treasure? The jars of clay, as Paul calls them, or in another translation, those earthen vessels, which is human nature as it is, our physical bodies in their weakness, our minds with their limitations and confusions, and our mortal nature with its distortions and misconceptions. What holds this priceless treasure? Us. When Paul considers us as earthen vessels, he isn't disparaging the body or considering it merely a receptacle of that holding you know, place for our soul. Instead, Paul's comparing the value of God's light and glory to the value of what he chose to put his light and glory into. When you compare the two, you can't help but be amazed that God chose to put such an immeasurable treasure into us. Simple jars of clay, earthenware vessels. Now, in order to really understand that, we got to step way back in time, okay? Earthenware vessels were common in every home in the ancient world. They weren't durable, they were easily broken, they were essentially useless if cracked or damaged, and therefore unable to hold what they were designed to hold. Essentially, they were cheap and of little value, yet God chose to put His light and glory, His light and glory, in the everyday dishes, not the fine china. Okay, so... Now we're, we step back into the ancient world. Let's fast forward, not to today, but to 1947. East of the city of Jerusalem, the mountainous landscape plummets dramatically 1,200 meters or more to the lowest point on the planet, the Dead Sea. Some of the most dramatic biblical stories are set in the rocky caves in this region between the Judean hills and the Dead Sea. 
Here, in the intense heat of the barren Judean desert, we can visualize David fleeing from King Saul, seeking refuge in the desert's mountain caves, and Jesus rejecting the temptations of the devil. For thousands of years, the Judean desert held secrets buried in its sands, only to be revealed by a young Bedouin shepherd. The discovery of these ancient treasures initiated a modern-day adventure into the past, revolutioning, re- excuse me, revolutionizing our current understanding of history and religion to a great extent. So as the story goes, a shepherd left uh, his flock of sheep and goats to search for a stray. Amid the crumbling limestone cliffs that lined the northwestern rim of the Dead Sea, around the ancient site of Qumran in what is now Palestine, he found a cave uh, in the crevice of a steep rocky hillside. Intrigued, he cast a stone into the dark interior, only to be startled by the sound of breaking pots. The sound echoed around the world, for he had stumbled upon the greatest find of the century, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Upon entering the cave, the young Bedouin found a mysterious collection of large clay jars. The majority of those jars were empty, and upon examining the remaining few, he found that some of the jars were intact with lids still in place. However, a closer look revealed nothing but old scrolls inside, some wrapped in linen and blackened with age. The jars themselves were not so valuable, but the treasure of God's word inside was priceless. In a like way, we are like those ancient jars of clay. The priceless treasure is the eternal light and glory of God contained within the heart of the simple vessel, the believer, you and me. The question then has to be asked, why does God put such a great treasure in such weak and otherwise worthless vessels? It's actually quite simple. It's so that the greatness of the power may be of God and not of us. So that it would be evident to anyone who had eyes to see that the work that was being done by the power of an all-powerful God was his work and not the power of the powerless vessel. And Why did God choose us, risky earthen vessels that could be quite easily broken instead of, let's say, safe heavenly ones? Because perfect vessels are safe, but they bring glory to the vessel, to themselves. Earthen vessels are risky but they can bring profound glory to God. I'm going to shift gears for for just a minute. Um, I was saying to somebody between services that uh, when I had started 
um, putting this message together that uh, I think in my mind I had a certain kind of direction for where it would end up. And you really can't do that when you exegete God's word. And, um, and it was really kind of interesting because uh, in my study, um, it actually referred me to um, uh, the story of Gideon in the Old Testament book of Judges in chapter 7. And, and I had never really focused on this before. I always kind of remembered the trumpets and, and all of that. And, and in reducing the size of the army, and we all know that story, right? Um, however, in the story of Gideon, it was in the breaking of jars, and I, again, you can refer to it if you can look at it later, that made the light shine forth and bring victory to God's people. And I, I just thought that was really interesting. Um, it, it, so again, it was in the breaking of the jars, Okay, so in the rest of this chapter, Paul's going to show how God breaks his clay pots, us, so that the excellence of this all-surpassing power is clearly of God and clearly not of us. Okay, so then Paul goes on, he states, this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. I mean, he states that right out, right up front. Simply put, the power we have to overcome anything, anything, is from God and not from within ourselves. Paul intentionally used the modifier that's been translated all-surpassing in order to emphasize that this power is capable of conquering anything. Paul then goes on to present us with a bit of point-counterpoint, a depiction of hope in the face of adversity. He says this, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. When faced with the adversities of life, we need to grasp onto Jesus so that we too might deal with those adversities, whatever we're facing, but, and as a result, bring glory to Him. We're hard-pressed on every side. Do you feel that way sometimes? In the world? How about even in the church sometimes? It can happen, right? I see some shrugs. I, Paul's life was hard. And it was hard because of his passionate devotion to Jesus Christ in his gospel. The word translated hard-pressed has in its root the idea of being hunted. Paul was a wanted, hunted man because of what he was for Jesus. One aspect of living as a wanted, hunted man means that he experienced terrible stress probably every moment of every day. Yet Paul was not crushed by this stress. He could still serve the Lord gloriously because of Christ in him. He characterizes it this way. Hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, yet look at the triumph of Jesus in Paul's life. 
not crushed, not in despair, not abandoned, not destroyed. Did you catch that? The triumph of Jesus in Paul's life. Not Paul's triumph, not our triumph, but the triumph of Jesus in Paul's life and in our lives. Paul knew the power and victory of Jesus in his life because he was continually in situations where only the power and victory of Jesus could meet his need. You find yourself in situations, I know I do, and my wife would probably tell you more more regularly than I ought, okay? Um, But you find yourself in situations where you're trying to do whatever it is you're trying to do, okay, in your strength, your wisdom, your power, and finding yourself absolutely lacking, overwhelmed, and inadequate. Yes? Why is it, children of God, that we are not doing it in His all-surpassing power? I ask myself that. In verses 10 and 11, Paul writes this, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul, like any Christian, wanted the life of Jesus to be evident in him. Don't we sometimes pray for that? I do. We're in situations, Lord, let them see Jesus in me. Lord, let them see Jesus in me. Paul knew that this could only happen if he also carried about in him the dying of the Lord Jesus. This seems kind of odd, right? In verse 10, what Paul's saying is that he felt as if the death of Jesus was being spiritually worked inside of him. He's saying that the death of Jesus was not only an historical fact, it was also a spiritual reality in his life. And as believers, it is and should be in ours. As we heard earlier, Laura's story in her song, Blessings, asked God a whole bunch of questions. What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life, is there a revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? And what if trials of this life The rain, the storms, the hardest nights are your, God, mercies in disguise. There are some aspects of God's great work in our lives that only happen through adversity, trials, and suffering. In his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul speaks about the glory of knowing Jesus, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Here we are in another letter from Paul to another church, the church in Philippi. 
saying essentially the same thing. Many long to know the power of his resurrection, but want nothing to do with the fellowship of his sufferings or being conformed to his death. However, as I just said earlier, there are certain blessings that God can only release through a broken vessel. So we, as Paul, can rejoice in knowing both the suffering and the glory. Paul then continues on to close out this chapter in verses 16 through 18 by proclaiming, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul stated, declared, therefore, we do not lose heart. Or said another way, we do not lose hope. Let's back up a bit. Paul began this chapter, chapter 7, and obviously in the original manuscripts there was no numbers, there was no chapters, there was no verses, of course. But this section of his letter to the church in Corinth He started it this way. He declared this, Since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. I'm going to repeat that one more time. Since we have this ministry, as we have, already past tense, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Then as the chapter proceeded, he then described all the death-like sufferings he had to endure in the ministry. It's as if Paul now anticipates this next question. Hey Paul, in this life, how can you not lose heart? Well, let's let's answer that question to Paul. The word therefore is the first part of the answer because it points us back to what Paul just wrote. Paul explained that his death-like trials and his continued faith, perseverance, and yes, victory through Christ in him made for a more effective, life-giving ministry for the Corinthian Christians. Knowing this made him not lose heart in the midst of those trials and suffering. The second part of the answer comes next. Even though our outward man, our physical body, is perishing, yet the inward spiritual man is being renewed day by day, which provides yet one more reason why Paul does not lose heart, because though all of his suffering takes a toll on the outward man, yet the inward man is what? Being renewed and blessed. 
So let's go back to those jars of clay. Outward man has the same idea as the jars of clay, those earthen vessels, okay, in verse 7, and the mortal body in verse 11. The message is the same. On the outside, we're taking a beating, and we're suffering. But on the inside, God is blessing and renewing us. Paul then, in what I'm going to call or look at as being the climax verses of this passage, verses 17 and 18, encourages us. I'm using that word very intentionally. He encourages us to look beyond the difficulties and adversities of today and look to the coming glory that far outweighs them all. When Paul describes what he calls our light and momentary troubles, we might wonder if he ever knew any real troubles or trials. Well, if not familiar with Paul's ministry, some might even think, well, Paul, your troubles might be light, but mine aren't. If you only knew what I am going through right now, or how I am suffering, why, it's, it's absolutely unbearable. However, Paul did not write as a kindergartner in the, this is how one theologian put it, as a kindergartner in the grade school of suffering. He had an advanced college degree. He describes some of his suffering in these terms. In prison, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, robbed, in peril of his own countrymen, in peril of the Gentiles, in peril among false brethren, in peril in the city, in peril in the wilderness, in peril in the sea, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in thirst, in cold, in nakedness. And those were just the physical outward sufferings. What about the spiritual burdens that he bore, and the spiritual attacks he faced. John MacArthur writes that the uh, word translated in the NIV as troubles is, and it's really hard for me to say, it's thlipsis um, in the Greek, sometimes translated as tribulations. And it has the underlying meaning of being under pressure and was used of squeezing olives in a press in order to extract the oil or squeezing grapes to extract the juice, that kind of thing. In Scripture, the word thlipsis is most often used of outward or physical difficulties, but it's also used of emotional stress. You under stress? I'm under tremendous stress. I'm I'm being transparent with you right now. As a matter of fact, I've, I've said to probably some of you that I know well, um, I've been feeling quite overwhelmed about the last six to nine months of my life. Okay? Right? Something we share. So, just so you all know that when I prepare a message, I get a whole lot more out of this than you will. So, um, you know, God's speaking to me. God had me choose this passage of Scripture. But, um, so again, it yes, Many of us are not facing trials, difficulty, adversity. We're not facing some of the physical pain and suffering that Paul went through. But I am pretty confident that many of us are suffering stress. So, again, this word thlipsis that's used here is for both. And figuratively speaking, thlipsis 
pictures one being crushed by intense pressure, difficult circumstances, suffering or trouble pressing upon them from without. That was one of the definitions. Thus, these troubles, persecution, affliction, distress, opposition, tribulation, whatever you want to call it, all serve to press hard on one's soul. So when Paul writes of our light and momentary troubles, flips this, we can know God really means our light and momentary troubles. Yours, mine, and Paul's. If Paul could say his troubles were light, then what are ours? So why are, according to Scripture, why are our troubles light and not heavy, and why are they but momentary? We have to ask that question. There are actually several reasons. First, because even during the absolute worst of this, by the measure of eternity, our troubles are for but a moment. This is partially true in the sense that most of our troubles come and go. Or as my dad used to say, sometimes quite often, this too shall pass. But secondly, it's also true in the sense that even a long life by this world's standards is nothing on the scale of eternity. Even if one were to live for a hundred years or more and suffer every single day of their existence by the measure of eternity, it's for but a moment. But there's a third reason. The third reason is because of what God accomplishes in us through our troubles, which is a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, there's more. Romans 8.17 is clear on this. If indeed we suffer with him, we may also be glorified together. If indeed we suffer with him, we may also be glorified together. Glory is inextricably tied to suffering and God will accomplish in us a goal and a glory that will far outweigh any trouble we have suffered here. Theologian G. Campbell Morgan in his exposition on the Bible puts it this way. Affliction is not something to be endured in order to reach glory. It's the very process which creates the glory. Through travail comes birth, a birth into glory. In order to better understand this, we have to address what is meant by the weight of glory. It's not easy to appreciate that phrase, weight of glory. And after further reflection, I thought a lot about this and did a lot of study on this, I'm not sure that any of us can ever truly appreciate it because why? It's an eternal weight. And I can't wrap my mind about that around that fully. So setting that aside for just a moment, the problem isn't, and this is really important, the problem isn't so much in what we think about our light and momentary troubles, but in that we think so little of our coming weight of glory. Again, shifting from that worldly perspective to a biblically right perspective. 
It's almost as if Paul is saying to us, go ahead, get out your scale. You know, the kind that does this, right? Get out your scale. Put all your troubles, okay? Put all your troubles on one side of the scale. All right? Okay. And even put your thumb down on that side. Right? Then, let me place the weight of glory on the other side of the scale. And you're going to see what light and momentary troubles you really have. Let me put the weight of glory on the other side. Paul closes out the chapter by telling us that we must fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Fixing our eyes is more than just looking. Stated differently, and I'm going to be very intentional, it's a bit of a kind of a tongue twister. We must not look and keep on not looking at those things which are seen, but we must look and keep on looking at those things that are unseen. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's really kind of what it means. Okay, um, when we look, or more accurately, fix our gaze on the things which are seen, all we see are what? Our troubles, right? And what happens to those troubles? They seem to grow. They seem to consume us. They become insurmountable, right? But when we fix our gaze on the things which are unseen, it is then that we see and appreciate, not fully, but we appreciate the eternal weight of glory. Again, it all goes back to the matter of perspective. Paul isn't saying that all afflictions automatically produce glory. It's possible to allow suffering to destroy us, to let our troubles make us bitter, miserable, self-focused. However, if we will fix our eyes on the things which are unseen, our troubles will work in us an eternal weight of glory. That's what Scripture says. For what is it that we fix our eyes on? Where do we look? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. In times of crushing adversity and crisis, when it seems that God is far away and all hope is lost, it is for us to fix our eyes not on what is seen, that which is temporary, but on what is unseen, that which is eternal. It's to view the current situations in which we find ourselves in light of God's eternal kingdom and not the momentary troubles of today, no matter how daunting they seem to be. When fixing our eyes on Jesus, we see the one that has conquered sin and death and by grace has delivered us from our sins. No small task. 
My human perspective tells me that things are dire. Yet the biblical perspective that Paul speaks of calls these what? Light and momentary troubles. Does Paul have any idea of the troubles that you and I are experiencing today in the 21st century? Of course not. However, Paul speaks beyond time to the hope that we have in who we are in Christ and in the all-surpassing power of Christ in us. Let me share one more perspective with you this time. It's an Old Testament perspective on hope amidst trouble. In the book of Lamentations, the author who some biblical scholars believe was Jeremiah was an eyewitness to the divine judgment that was visited on Jerusalem in 586 B.C. A horrifying devastation almost beyond imagining. The author, after having lived through that terrible devastation and after 65, literally I counted them, 65 verses of grieving, pleading, and heart-rending lamenting, At that point, he almost seems to snap out of it and come to his senses by saying this, Yet, this I call to mind and therefore have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yes. Many of us are lamenting the troubles in our lives. Yes, many of us have experienced and will continue to experience profound pain. I am not making light of that. But, because of God's great love, we are not consumed. Yet this I call to mind and therefore have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Did you catch that? We need to call to mind. That is, we need to remind ourselves that because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Because of the Lord's great love, we can have hope. In closing, and I promise I am, um, I must admit, I'm trying to be transparent, over the past two years, when facing some of the trials and adversity in my personal and family life, in my professional life, as well as in my service to the church, and there's been some, the words holy inadequate have often come to mind, and that is not holy, H-O-L-Y, inadequate, it's holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, inadequate, What I mean by that is that I felt wholly inadequate to deal with whatever the situation or adversity was or is. But the good news is that I don't have to. And all of us, as his children dearly loved, we don't have to. That's because the Lord will not allow to fail that which is his will. In other words... It's not through our strength, our wisdom, our resources. I already said this earlier, okay? Or our effort, all right? Our power, okay? It's not through any of that. That whatever it is at this moment in time, it will be accomplished as long as it is His will. And it's by the mighty and powerful hand of God. 
It's by and through the all-surpassing power, all-surpassing power of God in us. Amen? And that, and that is why we must keep our eyes firmly fixed on Him and not on those things of the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for the priceless treasure given to us. That of our justification through your finished work on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for your all-surpassing power that we have in you. Lord, we ask that you help us fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. To keep our eyes firmly fixed on you. And finally, we pray that you would grant us your perspective when we face adversity and that, Lord God, through that, you would accomplish in us a glory that far outweighs any trouble that we have suffered here. Finally, Lord God, may you continue to bless this church and her people as we seek individually and corporately, to know and do your will in the holy and powerful name of Jesus. Amen and amen.